Almighty God, you are King of kings. You are our King of righteousness. You are indeed the Prince of Peace. This morning, Lord, we ask that you will help us. For we confess these things are hard to understand, and we're often dull and sluggish in our receiving of your word. Grant us maturity this morning, Lord, that we may find on that we may feed on the solid food of your word and be convinced of our superior Savior in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For He is indeed our great High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We ask, Father, that you will grant us faith, grant us hope, grant us hearts that long for the truth of your word that you may sustain us through the preaching and that your spirit will so come to reveal in our hearts areas that we need to submit to you. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be in the weeds. Um, it's it's going to be... A while before we get out of the weeds. <laughs> um, chapters 7, 8, and 9 are, are thick, dense chapters. And my task is to lead us through these weeds so that we have some bearing at the end of it all. And so my hope is, is that we uh, come to that in our text this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. My hope is to um, make two clear points from our text and then go directly to some pay dirt where that will actually matter. So I want to go ahead and confess now that we're going to be in high weeds. And so as our text says, look over at chapter 5 of Hebrews. Chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 10, the pastor is, that's preaching this sermon, which is the book of Hebrews... He's preaching it to his congregation, and he says to them when he wrote this sermon, he said, he speaks of this, and he says, being designated, speaking of Christ, by God, verse 10 of chapter 5, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and then he, a period there, right? He stops. He says, wait a minute. Verse 11, about this, we have much to say. That is chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And it is... Hard to explain <laughs> since you have become dull of hearing or sluggish in your hearing. And so one of the reasons this is dense is because the Bible says it is. <laughs> and it is going to be it's going to be tough. So as we're going through the weeds this morning, I want to encourage you to lean in. To with all of your effort, try not to see this and, and we're we're spoiled on Facebook posts and Twitter inferences, and we think truth comes like that. And what we find when we read books like Hebrews and the book of Romans is that there's this linear, long argument that builds on itself, and we've done ourselves a disservice by not being able to hang in there and listen for, in, for, for a period of time. So I want to encourage you in that this morning. Stay close, because if you get lost in the middle, I may not be able to find you and get you back where you need to be. 
Okay? So I want to encourage you in that. There's another reason why this may be a little dense, and that is that we're entering into a world uh, of which we have no background. And that is the Levitical priesthood. Um, the, the best we understand about the priests or what we understand today, possibly by, for example, maybe Catholic priest. If some of you, I know some of you grew up in the, in the Catholic church. And so there's that understanding that's, that's vastly different from the Old Testament priest of the Old Testament. And so we're going to have to um, get you kind of spun up on that and then throw in guys by the name of Melchizedek in the mix of all that and try to figure out who he is. Okay? So we've got a lot of work to do this morning, and I wanted to encourage you to hang in there with me and know that I know that this is going to be an effort on all of our parts to, to be clear and careful. And again, like I said, my prayer is that at the end of the day, the Lord will draw us to himself through this message. It is his word, and it is given to us because it's good for us. And that doesn't mean that we have the ability or the, even the authority to place judgment upon whether we think this is good or not. It is good for us, and so that's why we're here this morning. Notice with me, if you will, as well, that we're going to be entering into not only this understanding of priesthood and Levitical priesthood, but we're also going to be going back in our Bibles to where Chuck read for us this morning in Genesis chapter 14. Look with me, if you will, at verse 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And so right there in verse 1, our pastor is trying to point us back to a text. He's pointing these original listeners back to a text in Genesis chapter 14 for us to understand this. Now, why does he bring up Melchizedek here? Well, it's because, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 10 of chapter 5, he brings up Melchizedek and says that Jesus is a, is, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he goes on a parenthesis in verses 11, chapter 5, verse 11, through the rest of chapter 6, verse 20. And then in chapter 7, he comes out of that parenthesis. And the reason we know is because at the end of verse 20, he says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's coming back to that thought, that I, to that idea. Okay? Now, I'm going to have no hope of keeping you guys. Um, I think when, when y'all are playing with the air, I think you might have turned it just to the fan. Is there any air conditioner coming out of that? Because it's getting a little warm. And if it gets hot in here, I have no hope of keeping you guys. I realize that. Um, see if, the, if it's actually air or if it's just a fan on. It may be just me because of the, because of, and I know what I, I have ahead of me. Thank you, Jason. Just, just make sure that's good. All right. So we have that end of chapter 6, verse 20. He speaks of after the order of Melchizedek, and then he launches in chapter 7 into an explanation of who Melchizedek is. Okay? And he points us back to Genesis chapter 14. Now what's interesting is that this person, Melchizedek, is only mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 and in Psalm 110. There's only two references in the Old Testament of this character. Very mysterious. And I want you, to, at this time, if you would, um, to go back to Genesis chapter 14. And you're thinking to yourself, I haven't got the points yet. Well, we're getting there. I want, I, want, I want to bring you there, and hopefully this will be helpful, and you'll see how everything comes together. Genesis 14, I want you to see what 
was in the mind of the listeners of this first congregation when the pastor through this book of Hebrews was preaching and he gets to verse 1 of chapter 7 and he mentions the slaughter in this Melchizedek and what takes place with these kings. He's referencing this passage and I want to look where we read this morning and I want us to notice that as Chuck told us, there was four kings going against five kings. Now we think of um, these huge, massive kingdoms. Um, it was more of an understanding of pretty much kind of cities with a governor, and the governor was pretty much a king. And they said, you know, we really like that stuff over there, so let's go over there and take those people's stuff. I mean, it wasn't as organized. Look how far back we are in the book of Genesis. It was very primitive times. And so we have these four kings that come together, and the king that is the head of these four kings is a guy by the name of um, uh, Cataleamor. That's how I'm going to say it anyway. Everybody pronounces it different. Cataleamor, and he is, he is in charge of these four kings. He goes after these five kings. One of those five kings is the king of Sodom. Well, these four kings take over, beat the five kings. Odd, isn't it? The smaller number defeats the larger number of kings and kingdoms. And it takes all their stuff. Well, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is in Sodom. And so Abraham is going to have none of that. He's going to go get his stuff from his nephew and, and, and settle this issue. So Abraham, with his band of people, in verse 11 of chapter 14 of Genesis, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. So these kings took all the stuff of Sodom. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, an Amorite, uh, brother of Eskael and Naor. These, these were a, uh, allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen, that is Lot, had been taken captive, he led forty. Uh, uh, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, three hundred eighteen of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so he's going after his nephew's stuff. And he divided his forces against them, and by night, and he and his aunts and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to um, uh, Hobeah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot. Kin, brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And after this, look at this verse seventeen. And after his return from the defeat of Calamor, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. All right, are you with me? Hang in there. I want you to hang in there. Verse 17. Jump down to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. You see what I just did? I just jumped verses 18 through 20, and I didn't miss a beat in the text. Verse 17 speaks of the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram. In other words, taking out verses 18 through 20 changes nothing in the story. In fact, you could take it out and read right along and never think anything's missing. And yet, here, out of nowhere, presumably, verses 18 through 20, this strange character, Melchizedek, shows up. 
Melchizedek is not one of the nine kings. If you read through the list of the nine kings in chapter 14, verse 1, Melchizedek is not one of them that was at battle and one of them that may have been defeated or was, was defeating the others. He isn't one of those kings. All of the others are named. But instead, what we have here in verse 18 is, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. See that? Or the God Most High. I'm sorry. Of the God Most High. Verse 19. And he blessed him. So his title is God Most High. And he blessed him. He's the king of Salem. And he's greeting Abram with all of his loot. Abram's got all of his possessions that he has just come back from defeat, taking care of these kings that were rebels. And he took care of all that. It says in verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by the God Most High. There's the phrase again, that title. Possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed, and blessed be God most high. There's that title again. Who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And then the final phrase or sentence in verse 20 of chapter 14. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21 picks up with the narrative. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And he goes right on. It's just shoved in there, and it has really no bearing on anything else in the text. Notice these titles. God Most High, he's Melchizedek, king of Salem. Notice also that it mentions the fact that this king Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and he also gave him, according to the end of verse 20, a tenth of everything. So I want you to notice what's there, meaning all these titles and things and names, but I also want you to notice what's not there. And that is any reason for this to be in this text at all. There's no, there's no source. There's no understanding of that. This text, or Melchizedek, the name doesn't pop up again until Psalm 110. It's about a thousand years later. Psalm 110, David says, Melchizedek will be a king forever. That's odd, isn't it? Just out of nowhere again, here's Psalm 110, verse 4 specifically, mentions Melchizedek. Now with that in mind... Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And I want you to see that this pastor in chapter 7 verse 1 is making reference to those three verses alone. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. You see, that's the phrase that he was using three times in the book of Genesis in those short three verses. Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, a tenth part of everything. Okay? So that's exactly the passage that he's referencing. Now hang in there with me. The next thing I want to speak of is this. And I want to kind of bring us up to speed on. And that is the understanding of a priest. A priest. We do not understand priest, even from the Catholic perspective, most of us. But then when we start dipping into um, the book of Leviticus and Numbers, we all know that's the part of the Bible where in January we're reading really good. We're doing that Bible reading plan. And then come Leviticus and Numbers is when, like February, March is when we just say, you know what, we'll just try it again next year because we end up losing ourselves in those books, those first. 
the Levitical system of all the different things that are taking place, that's the stuff that this pastor is assuming his his people understand, and they do because they're Jews, and they understand the, the sacrifices and the, and, the, and the system of Levitical priesthood. We don't. Let me help you here because we don't need to understand everything in order to understand the passage. But we do need to understand this, and this was helpful for me. The Latin word for priest is the word pontiff or pontifex. That's actually a literal rendering of that word pontiff is the word bridge builder. Bridge builder. A priest is one who builds a bridge between man and God. And that may be the simplest way for us to understand. I mean, there's a lot of different things that the priest does. But at the end of the day, the bridge of a, a, a priest is a pontiff, which is a bridge builder. And he builds a bridge between God and and man, and man and God. And that's what this, this, this priest will do. Specifically, the high priest has a unique role of going into the most holy of holies and standing on behalf of God's people and speaking for the people of God to God. And it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to do this very thing, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, i.e., a high priest is a bridge builder between God's people and man. And so the question we have before us this morning is, and this is the question that's being asked, at the end of verse, uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 6, it says, Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And now the question is, in what way is Christ... A better bridge builder than the Levitical priest of the Old Testament. Do you see what he's doing here? Now, hopefully, you're kind of beginning to, to you're coming out of the fog. Okay, granted, granted, we're, we're doing it, but we're coming out of the fog here. So he's asking, how is it that Christ can be a better bridge builder than the Levitical priest? And so he's going to show us that through this person, this mysterious person, Melchizedek. And I want us to see this and answer this question in, in, with two points. And here's, here's the two points for the message this morning. The first thing I want us to see is Melchizedek's identity. And I've written the word Melchizedek a thousand times this week in my research. And so I, let me make it easy for you now. By the end of it, I started just writing Mel. So that'll help because you, you'll never spell it the same way twice if you try to get it in there. So just abbreviate Mel, Melchizedek's identity. Melchizedek's identity. And then secondly, second point, Melchizedek's superiority. Melchizedek's identity and Melchizedek's superiority. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to be speaking of his identity. Verses 4 through 10, we're going to be speaking of his superiority. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The first identification that we have of this, of this Melchizedek is that he is a priest of the Most High God. This is an interesting phrase. God's people 
throughout the Old Testament referred to their God that they worshipped. In the Hebrew, it was the word Yahweh. They wouldn't say that word. They would say the name instead of Yahweh. Or they would say Adonai. And Adonai was a word that they would translate. And in our Bibles, when the word Yahweh or the given name, the, the name that is the most superior name for God, that the people of God would call him, Israelites would call him, in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, it is referenced by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the, that's the divine name of God. That's what they, God's people, understood God's name to be. On occasion, they would call him Adonai, which is when we see in our Old Testaments the, the word Lord, but it's spelled capital L, small, lowercase, O-R-D. That's Adonai. That's a different word for Lord, and it's two different names. Sometimes they'll call him Lord God. That's a double phrase. But God's people would always refer to God in, in this reference or understanding him in that way, or at, or at least if speaking of the name, speaking of that divine name that they were not to say. They didn't use, however, this phrase we have in our passage, Most High God. It's an interesting phrase. It is only used in the book of Genesis and three times in those three verses. Did you remember it a while ago when I was pointing it out? I mean, it's pretty dense in those three verses that it's being used by this king, Melchizedek. He's speaking these words. He's not an Israelite. Melchizedek is not... Uh, and and he's, not in the, he's not in the line of Abraham. He's apart from Abraham. And he is a, if you will, a pagan, someone who doesn't know anything about the God of Israel. And he's referring to this God that is the God of Abraham as the, according to this passage, most high God. And if you remember, he goes on in chapter 14, verse 19. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. And he goes on, possessor of heaven and earth. This title was communicated or spoken by, of God only by those who were not Israelites, and it was spoken by them to speak of the, the, the universality, the fact that God is the one true God of all the gods of all the world. And it's amazing that it's only spoken by those who are outside the community of God's people in the Old Testament. You know who else speaks this name? It only occurs once or twice in the Psalms, and it's kind of a variant there. But the most, most frequent occurrence of this title is in the book of Daniel. Listen to this and you'll, you'll know exactly where the story comes from. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 3. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. You see the significance of that title? Nebuchadnezzar, one who did not know this God of Israel, this God of the Jews, is declaring this God as being the most high God. In what circumstance? In the circumstance of watching the Hebrews standing in the furnace and seeing that they were not burned up. He is making a statement that out of all the gods that Nebuchadnezzar has served and worshipped in Babylon, this one is remarkable, the one that the Jews, these Jewish boys, are serving. And he mentions this title, the God who is the God of most, uh, the most high God. Daniel chapter 5 mentions this title again. Let me see if you can remember this story as well. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of the beast. Who's that speaking of? Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself. He was driven out. 
and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew, now all of these things were happening to him, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. See what's happening? A outside of Israel people declaring that this God is the one true God of all gods, the universality of this God. He's not one of many, but he is the sole one of all of them. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. This is what it's speaking of. And so this identification of Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. And in this case, notice this, this letter is being written to who? To whom? It's being written to Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians have a tendency of thinking that God is, God is only for them and the Messiah is only for them. And this Melchizedek is a declaration to him. He says that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek in what way? In this identification that he's not just simply the high priest of the Jews, but he's the high priest of all people, all humanity, because he's the God of the Most High. He's the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one of whom in Acts chapter 4 it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, this is a universal title that's spoken most often by those who do not know that God. And we see that this identification, identification number one, is that that this Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God, a universal God, a God who, who is over all others and superior to them. So Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, and in this way he's identified as a king, a, a priest of the Most High God. Well, it says in verse 2, And to him Abraham apportioned, meaning Melchizedek, he apportioned a tenth part of everything he had, all these possessions and things. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The later in verse 2, it says, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. And so the second identification I want you to see here of this Melchizedek is in relationship to his name. Names were very important for God's people. Often children were named after scenarios or characteristics. Um, you know, Jacob was called the heel grabber, uh, obviously because of his birth. And so here, Melchizedek is, is taking a name that's reflective of his character. The word Melech, which is the beginning of Melchizedek, is the word for king. It's the Hebrew word for king. And the word Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And so Melchizedek is the actual name itself, says he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. Now, the reason he has this name, according to our text is he is first, by translation of his name, a king of righteousness. And therefore, he's pointing us to a... To, to, if, if Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, what is, Jesus, what, what is Melchizedek doing? He's pointing us to Jesus, who is the righteous one, the righteous king. And then secondly, we see, in way of his name, that and then he is also king of Salem. This is speaking of where he was king, where his origin was. This word Salem is probably an ancient name because it's Genesis 14. There's not much that's happened yet in way of Scripture and revelation of what we have. We're early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14. Jerusalem is probably this place, Salem, 
And when it was called Salem first, this is ancient name. And as we go through history in the Bible, this Salem becomes Jerusalem. And then it became Jerusalem. So this king was more than likely the first or one of the first kings of Jerusalem, that area, which was called Salem. This word Salem comes from the word Shalom, which is the word for peace. And that's exactly what it's mentioning here. So in this way, we have a righteous king of peace. Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ, who is our righteous king of peace. Isn't that exactly what the angel said in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom his favor rests. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 14? He says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but, the, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have a righteous king of peace. How do we find this peace? Let me give you an equation here. There is no peace without righteousness. There is no righteousness without Christ. And so in Christ, in Christ alone, are we made righteous so that we can have peace with God. Did you get that? Let me say it again. There is no peace without righteousness. There is no righteousness without Christ. So in Christ and Christ alone are we made righteous so that we may have peace with God. It's what the psalmist said this morning as Kim was reading it for us. Steadfast love and faithfulness met. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. They come together in the person of Christ. When we are righteous, we will have peace. Do you know why your life is in turmoil and tribulation and struggles and difficulties? you know why there's no peace there? Because there's no righteousness. See, when we're living in righteousness, when we're living a righteous life as God has called us to, according to what God has given to us, when we're living that way, there's comfort and there's peace. But when there's no righteousness, there is no peace. And here's the point, fellas, brothers and sisters, we can't be righteous. In fact, what we'll do is we'll try really hard and at best we'll be good. <laughs> we'll never make righteous. How do we become righteous? Romans chapter 4 says we're, right, we're righteous, we're declared righteous by faith. By faith in the Son of God. That we're made right before God because of our faith in Christ. And His righteousness is being given to us. We're being, according to the, the big theological term, is we're imputed with Christ's righteousness. And when we have Christ's righteousness, brothers and sisters, there's peace. Now, how do we bring that together? Well, I bring it together exactly the way Romans chapter 5 does. Chapter 4 speaks of how Abraham obtained righteousness through faith. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, or made right by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? Melchizedek is this righteous king of peace. And only through righteousness, only through the righteousness of Christ, can we be at peace with God. We're all wanting comfort and ease. We're all wanting to 
move away from the tribulation and turmoil and trials of this world. Christ himself, himself said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither be afraid. Why? Because Christ in his righteousness will come and give us peace. Give us peace. So the second identification of Melchizedek is not just that he is this universal king or universal God who's God over all gods, but second identification is that he's this righteous king of peace. And he points us to Christ in that regard. The third identification that we see in our text this morning is in verse 3. It says, He, meaning Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We have here that Melchizedek is without father and mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days or end of life. Who is this Melchizedek? Most have looked at this verse, verse 3, and have said, well, this person obviously is this mythological figure. He's just somebody that they kind of dreamed up and stuck in there, and then the, the, uh, the Hebrew authors have tried to make this fit. And So he's not really a real person, but he's a mythological figure. Obviously, I disagree with that. So um, that's what some have said. Others have said it's an ang- and a supernatural angelic being that it's probably one of the top of the angels, one of the most superior of all the angels, one of the most wonderful angels, because here it says he's without father or mother or genealogy, having no beginning of days or end of life. I don't think that's necessarily true either. Others have, and most have throughout history, placed this person as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself, that Christ himself showed up in the person of Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14. I don't think that's necessarily true either. Because of the key to this verse. Look at the key to this verse, verse chapter, three, uh, chapter 7, verse 3. He is without father or mother genealogy, having neither beginning or of days or end of life. And then this, this is the key. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Very easy for them to say, and like the Son of God, or as the Son of God. But he doesn't. That word's a distinct word for a copy, an impression. It's the idea of having a, a ring that has the, the insignia on it, and you press that ring in wax or clay, and when you lift it up, you see the insignia on that clay or on that wax. It, it, that, that is not the ring. That's a representation of what that ring was portraying. That's the word that's being used here. Melchizedek is a representation. He's resembling this son of God in this way. He's pointing us to Christ in this way in his superiority. So what does it mean here when it says he's without father and mother in genealogy? Simply what it means is that in our text, verses 18, 19, and 20 of Genesis chapter 14, we have nothing in way of, of, um, of Melchizedek's birth order, his genealogy, where he came from, who is his family, when did he die, when did he come into existence, when did he become the king of Salem. None of that is mentioned, is it? And nowhere else in Scripture is it mentioned. He pops into existence, he does what he does, and then he, he leaves, and then we don't hear from him anymore. Now, why is that important? I believe that's exactly what this is being saying here in verse 3, where it speaks of he has no genealogy, meaning there's nothing in the text that gives us his genealogy. There's nothing in the text that helps us see when he began and when his life was ended. Why is it so important? Because 
It's very important because in the priesthood of understanding the Old Testament, the genealogy was very uniquely, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was very uh, carefully followed. The Levites, the priest, had to follow in the tribe of Levi. And you had to prove your genealogy in that regard. In order to be a priest, you had to be within the tribe of Levi. And specifically, Aaron was the father of all of that. He was the, the leader of all that. And then on from that, the Levites were those who were um, who were the priests. That was a genealogy or a tribe. We know that not all kings were of the tribe of Judah, but all the good ones were. <laughs> David was from the tribe of Judah, and they always watched these kings and saw what tribes they were coming from. And specifically, the ones that were from Judah always seemed to be the ones that were paramount. And they were awaiting the one who would be the Messiah, the great king like David, from the tribe of Judah, that would reign over all, which is Jesus Christ. You see, these genealogies are very important. If you don't believe me, do your quiet time this week in Matthew chapter 1. That will bless your heart. Spend some time there reading over those genealogies, and you'll realize, what in the world are they doing? Well, they're keeping up, keeping track with who is related to who, because it's very, very important. The point here is this, is that Melchizedek had no genealogy. And here, here it goes. So in verse 3, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so he's resembling the Son of God, and he's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ isn't just a temporary priest who comes, lives for a while, does his work as a priest, dies, and then another one has to take his place. But instead, Christ has come and has, has, is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This becomes more significant a little later. But the point here is this, is that identification number three, identification number three is that Melchizedek points us to a Jesus who is eternal, <laughs> a high priest who is eternal. Identification number three. All right. We're in the weeds, aren't we? Let's, uh, let's go just a little bit deeper. Don't lose me. This will not take as long. I know it's a longer portion of text, but the argument's actually a little easier, believe it or not. And so I want to get through verses 4 through 10, and then I promise you my, my prayer and hope is that we'll hit pay dirt. Point number two, Melchizedek's superiority. Melchizedek's superiority. Verse 4 begins in our English translations with the only command in our text this morning. And that command, that imperative, that challenge is to see or to acknowledge or to consider or to observe. That's what's being spoken of here in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoil. See how great he is. This is the challenge of this pastor. This pastor is telling his congregation, I want you to see, acknowledge, understand, consider how great this man Melchizedek was in relationship to the Levitical priesthood. I want you to see how great he is. And so in this point, point number two, Melchizedek's superiority, first he gives them a challenge and says, first, notice that he is superior, he is great in this regard, this man who, whom Abraham, the patriarch, you see the article there? He's not a patriarch. He's the primary patriarch. He's the one by which all the others have started. The patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Tenth of the spoils. So the first understanding here, well, let me, let me back up and say there's, there's, there's two reasons why he's so great. One's because of the tithe, 
and the other is because of the blessing. One's because Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, and the second reason why he's so great is because Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing. So we're going to look at those two. First is this. In verse 4 at the end, the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, a good Baptist at this point would take that word tenth and tithe and go off onto the building project fund scenario, okay? I'm not a good Baptist, nor do we have a building project scenario. So you guys are off the hook all the way around. Um, a lot of different reasons why I'm not going to go there this morning, but the, the, the early understanding here of the tenth and the tithe, I simply want us to understand that in, in this particular area, I think the principle is true, though I don't think all the all the practices should come over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But I think the principle is true here in verse 4 where it says here that the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. That idea for spoils is, is two, Greek, or two, Hebrew, excuse me, two Greek words. I mean Hebrew. Okay, two Greek words coming together, and it basically means the top of the heap. And so as the Greek person would be listening to this, the patriarch gave a tenth from the top of the heap from the spoils, from the top of the heap of those possessions. And so the issue here isn't, I don't think, as important that the tenth is there. As much as it is, it's the first and primary, the, 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 the best of the best. It isn't that this Abraham was giving the leftovers to Melchizedek. He was giving the top of the heap, the very best of the best. He was doing what he, what he was. He was showing how superior Melchizedek was to him by giving of this tenth of the spoils. So we see his superiority in the giving of this tithe. He goes on to make a case for this tithe. Verse 5, he says, And those descendants of Levi, which are the priests, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. They have a commandment from the law to take tithes from the people. Numbers chapter 18 has that law in it. That is, from their brothers, verse 5, though these also are descended from Abraham. So what he's saying here is that the Levites or the priests had a commandment by God's law, Numbers chapter 18, to actually receive tithes from all of God's people. One of the reasons was is because the Levites owned nothing. Um, all of the other tribes had land, and all of the other tribes had land that was dispersed all the way around in a big circle, pretty much, as all the tribes of Israel were dispersed around the big circle. This is how they would set up camp. For example, in the, in the Exodus and other places, they would, they would, all the tribes would go around circle. The Levites had no land. They were not given any land. They were not to care for the land. Why? Because they had the responsibility of caring for the temple and caring for the sacrifices and caring for the people. And as they took care of the worship of God for God's people, these other tribes who had land would care for them by giving of them the tithes. Now, a true tithe, according to the Old Testament, this is why I don't think it's best to just transfer it right over out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, is a true tithe was actually a tenth from the seed that you get from your crops, a tenth of the fruit that you get from your crops, and a tenth of all the cattle. So you're actually giving 30%. So um, that's more than a tithe. In that regard, it's just interesting how it all works out. Nonetheless, this this pastor is saying they these people were giving these tithes to the Levites to take care of them, take care of the their goods and their welfare. And the point here is this: they were taking care of their own. They were taking care of their fellow brothers in 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 the Lord. It says here. It says verse <clears throat> in the verse five that is from their brothers. Those, these, though these also are descendants from Abraham. In other words, they were given the tithe for the purpose of taking care of their own, taking care of their priests. 
It goes on in verse 6 and says, But this man, meaning Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. In other words, Melchizedek received this tithe. Abraham wasn't taking care of his own. Why did Abraham give the tithes to Melchizedek when Melchizedek wasn't even, wasn't even part of his family? wasn't like the Levites who received tithes and were cared for because they were part of the family of Israel. But Melchizedek wasn't even family. Why did Melchizedek receive tithes from Abraham? Why did Abraham see fit to give it to him? Because Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Abraham saw Melchizedek as superior to um, to Melchizedek. And so Abraham here gave tithes. Why? Because he saw Melchizedek's superiority. Okay? Now, notice in verse 6, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. And then in, in the verse 6, it says, and blessed him. So this is the second reason why he's so great. Not only did he give tithes, but he blessed him who had promises. And it's amazing because he makes, he makes an argument, and it's pretty quick and simple. He says, so Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And then in verse 5, he says, it is beyond dispute. In other words, everybody knows this, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It doesn't work the other way around. There's no way that there's no other reason why Melchizedek would have blessed Abraham except for the fact that Melchizedek was indeed the superior and Abraham was the inferior. And because where did the Levites come from? Out of the lineage of Abraham? then the Levites were inferior to this king Melchizedek who was blessing Abraham. Do you see the argument that they're making? All right? Hang in there with me. We're going, we're going forward. We're going forward. He goes on, and in verse 8, he says, in the, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, meaning Levites. The Levites were taking tithes from the people. But in the other case, which is the case of Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. In other words, Melchizedek lives forever. But the priests die off. They usually become priests around age 25, and they usually have to stop being a priest. They no longer can serve after the age of 50. And so these priests were rotating through, but Jesus was a king, or Melchizedek was a king forever. He lives forever. Verses, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10, let me wrap up here. He goes on, and he says, One might even say, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So let me clarify here. The, the pastor here is saying that because the Levites are actually descendants of Abraham, when Abraham showed his allegiance to Melchizedek, it was as if all of the priests and Levitical priests that came out of Abraham were showing their allegiance to Melchizedek. So the question then is, is, is this. These Jewish Christians were asking the question, should we abandon the priesthood of the Old Testament to become Christians and accept Jesus as our only high priest to leave this bridge builder of the, of the, of the Old Testament tradition and take this bridge builder of Jesus Christ. Is it worth it? The pastor here is making the case that in, his, in Melchizedek's identity and in Melchizedek's superiority, it is necessary for you to abandon the Old Testament priesthood and to 
grasp or take or to receive this New Testament understanding of Christ as being the bridge builder or the high priest for them. Okay? Now, this is where I was hoping to get to some pay dirt. Just a couple more minutes. The pastor of the Hebrew congregation wanted his Jewish Christians to identify and consider their Old Testament priest in light of this one called Melchizedek. I believe that today we can, with this passage, identify our own priest. And you say to me, our own priest? We're not, we're not Catholic. Do we have our own priesthood today? Do we have our own bridge builders to our own self-made gods? Hang in there with me. Listen carefully. This is where I pray that the Spirit of God will help us this morning. Could it be that our self-made gods of beauty and prosperity, status, comfort, and happiness, that all of them have their own priests for us today in our culture? Could it be that the magazine cover model is a bridge builder for us of what we think is beautiful? Could it be that the rich and famous person on their yacht is the high priest that helps us understand how much fun it would be to be prosperous? Could it be that the Hollywood stars is feeding our desire and our want for status and importance? Could it be that our athletes are icons of health and strength that our society so desperately wants? I think we can ask ourselves the question and say, we just may have more priests than we think we do. We may have bridge builders all around us giving us the self-made gods that we've desired. We go to the magazines and go to the TV and go to the sporting arenas and we're longing for the things that they have. I want you to notice as well that as we're considering and evaluating and identifying our priests this morning, that our priests are very good indicators of what we really want. If we follow hard after X, Y, or Z, whoever that person is, it gives us a good marker of who we really want to be and what we really value. My question is this. I do know that all of us want, though we don't describe it this way, peace. We don't want the turmoil and turbulence of this world. And we see that others around us, the rich and famous, the model in the magazine, the guy out on the field, they don't have it as bad as we do, do they? They don't have any turmoil or struggle because every time I see them on TV, they're just happy and going, doing great, right? They're our priests. And they're convincing us that we can have peace through those things. We have a righteous king of peace who says that the only means to peace is through righteousness. And the only way to righteousness is through Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this morning I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, bring, do you really believe that righteousness, do you really believe that righteousness will bring true peace in your life? Or are you seeking comfort instead of peace? Entertainment instead of abiding joy? More stuff instead of the kingdom of God. Being healthy and strong and attractive instead of simply displaying the glory of God.
we need to understand that righteousness is what God is after. And righteousness is our answer. We, we think it's everything else. But today I want you to see that in Melchizedek we have a king of righteousness. A king that takes us to peace. And so now that we've identified, hopefully, or considered how to identify in our own time, maybe later on today, sit down with your Bible and spend some time asking the Lord, Lord, reveal to me, what are the things I'm after? Is it righteousness? Or is it all kinds of other things? And do I have priests that I go to as bridge builders to get me to those things that I think will make me happy and bring peace in my life? But as you consider these, I want you to understand this as well. These are good markers as well of what our priests are and what we're after, and it is this. I want to challenge you the same way that this Hebrews pastor challenged his congregation. Look at verse 4 with me. See how great this man is. Compare all of your wants and desires for peace and pursuit of happiness and joy and all these other things. Compare all of those and those priests that you have tied to those. And I want, you to, I want, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, I want to command you this morning... See that Christ is more superior. I want you to acknowledge that Christ is more superior. I want you to consider and take in and trust that Christ is more superior than any of those. And just like Abraham, friends, don't be fooled. We are tithing to our priest. We are giving our time and energy and resources to our priests. We are. And you know what we're wanting? The blessing. What they promise is what we're wanting. Has it delivered? It will not deliver. And the reason is because there is only one high priest forever, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. And friends, I want you to see this morning that He is more superior. He is more great. He is more satisfying. He is the one. Through Christ can we obtain righteousness and have peace with our God. So see how great our Christ is. See how great and superior Jesus Christ is. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This confession that he is there, that he's on our, that he's on our behalf. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every way, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, brothers and sisters, let us then with confidence abandon all of these other pursuits for peace. All these other priests that we're paying to, wanting a blessing that doesn't deliver. Abandon those, Lord, uh, brothers and sisters, and let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us pray.